I invite you all now to open up your copy of God's Word to Psalm 130. We'll be walking through the psalm uh, this morning, the whole psalm, all eight verses, uh, in a sermon I've entitled, A Song of Hopeful Waiting. Now, as you turn there, um, before we, we read, uh, it's helpful for us to know that this is a part of a group of psalms called the penitential psalms, which for you know, us today means, you know, penitential means repentance. So it's a, a repenting psalm. It was most often used as a pilgrimage song as Israelites would make their way to Jerusalem in order to take part in the various feasts and thanksgivings which were commanded by the Lord. And most importantly, as we will see, this psalm acted as a preparation for worship and obedience to the Lord as it so explicitly and clearly preaches a by grace you have been saved uh, kind of message. So it's, it's kind of like a, a New Testament-esque passage, um, but here in the Old Testament. And it shows us the hope we can have in God as our only escape from our sin and punishment. And so with that as an introduction, would you please rise if you're able for, for the reading of God's word. We do so out of reverence and worship for the Lord as he speaks to us. So here now today's passage from Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer once more? Father, as we've just read your word, would you aid us by your spirit to understand it and apply it to our hearts? Help us to see your forgiveness, mercy, and covenant faithfulness as we look at this passage this morning. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. In many ways, this passage deals with a heavy topic. As we read this psalm, we enter into a man's struggle to deal with the reality of his own sinfulness. And that's at, that's at the crux of this psalm in verse 3. We see he asks the same question that is echoed all over Scripture. If I'm sinful, how could I ever stand in the presence of a holy God? And without even thinking about it, you know what he's talking about. I mean, how many times have you felt that? The sense that you don't stand up to the requirements of God. This feeling that as employees, as students, as parents, as employers, or as children, that you have failed to meet this holy standard of our living God. Because we know deep down, even as people who go to church, what Romans 3.23 confirms. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we feel this. And this psalm gives form and image to this reality that we feel on a daily basis. But as we see, or as we will see, we're not just faced with the fact of our sinfulness. This psalm shows us the greatest answer to our deepest problem, which we can't provide for ourselves. And this answer is the hope that the psalmist clings to and the hope which we must cling to also. As we walk through this psalm, uh, we will see how the psalmist himself clung to this hope, and then we will see how we can too, not by our own doing, 
but by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've broken up this psalm into two major headings. Uh, first, we have the nature of our problem in verses one to three. And second, we have the nature of our hope in verses four to eight. Again, that's the nature of our problem and then the nature of our hope. Look again with me at your Bibles as we begin our first heading, the nature of our problem in verses one to two. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We can see here, we can feel it, that with each call for mercy, his cries become more and more desperate. He starts off, I cry to you. Then he moves, please hear my voice. And then finally he says, listen to what I am saying. He's going from just crying out to pleading with the Lord to hear what his cries are about. I mean, you can feel the desperation. He's in way over his head and can't get himself out. It's not a casual call to the Lord like we would make to our friends when we need them to help us move. This is an emergency call. Like when you try to move the stuff on your own and end up trapped underneath the piano. It's important that we understand that this is an emergency call and why it is an emergency call. Where is he? Well, we see he's in the depths. But you may be asking, well, what are the depths? Well, what is the big deal about being in the depths? Well, the Old Testament has something to say about what the depths are. Most often when the word or idea of the depths is used, it's associated with one thing, water, the chaos of water. We see this in Psalm 69, verse one. It says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. So then he's in the depths, so that means he's in the water, right? He's drowning. Well, I mean, I, I guess not really. It's a situation we see in verse three that he's placed himself in. It's more of a, a spiritual depths that he's feeling rather than a physical depths. But the imagery of the water coming up to his neck is helpful to understand his situation, his emergency call. And for any of you who have been there, who have been in this situation, almost drowning, you know why this is such a strong image of emergency. When I was younger, when I was um, five or six, my family had gone to take a, uh, go to a lake during the summer, which we often did while living in upstate New York. There's a lot of lakes, a lot of places to go with water. And uh, while we were there, I decided to go for a swim. And what I didn't realize before it was too late is that the currents in the lake were strong enough to pull me away from the beach and past the dock where my family and safety were. And before I could get a sense of what was happening to me, I started to see the water rise above my eyes and uh, I quickly ran out of energy as I was trying to fight against the current, current and trying to get back to the beach. And in that moment, even though I was five or six, and for those of you who have been in a similar situation, you know that no matter how hard you cry out, no matter how hard you want to scream out, how much you want to make a noise, how much you want people to see you, you can't do it. You're too busy trying not to drown in the water to make any effort to call out for help. Thankfully, obviously, my uncle saw my arms filling in the water and jumped in after me, but I was completely helpless to save myself. And this is the situation that the psalmist finds himself in. He's crying out in desperation to the Lord because he's surrounded to his neck in the waters of his own sin. And it's as a result 
of asking the question which every person in the history of the universe has asked as he's facing the reality of a holy God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The text never mentions any specific sin that he's committed or that he's being persecuted or that he has some sort of illness. From what we can understand, it's just the fact that he himself is sinful, that he's in the depths. He feels this giant valley sitting between himself and God as he looks into the holiness of his Lord and recognizes that he doesn't stand up. He doesn't meet the requirements. All the things he strives to do to be good fall and crumble under the weight of his sinfulness. And maybe this is where some of you are right now, or maybe this is what you're feeling. Some of you are questioning how it's possible to know God and that he loves you because you know just how sinful you really are. Maybe you're feeling like you're in way over your head with trying to save yourself and are being swept away into the middle of the ocean. No one can hear you. No one can see you. You're completely isolated. Some of you may be struggling with comparing yourselves with other believers and seeing how blessed they seem and how cursed you are. Those of you with these thoughts and experiences know acutely what the psalmist means by crying out from the depths. And so it's clear then that this emergency call is not one that the psalmist can answer himself and get out of trouble. There's no amount of positive affirmations and worldly wisdom, no amount of Oprah quotes that can convince him he's out of the muck and mire. He can't phone a friend and get him to tell him how great he is in order to lift him out of the depths. None of this, of course, sometimes it's nice to hear nice things about yourself, can save the psalmist from where he is. And they can't save you. So what's the answer? What's the answer to the fact that he is so sinful and he can't help himself, he's stuck in the waters? Well, he cries out to the only one who can help him. Again, we read in verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Though he is sinful and unable to help himself, he knows the one who can. He knows the one who is holy. And really, that's the best person he can cry out to. I mean, if I'm looking to get my car fixed, I'm not going to call a realtor to have him fix my, my engine. I'm going to call a mechanic. And vice versa, if I need to buy a house, I'm not going to call up the same mechanic I called for my car. The problem in the passage calls for a very specific answer, a very specific person, one that can only be answered by the Lord himself. You know, I think of Jesus in the Gospels when he and the disciples are out in the water in their boat and a storm arises as he's sleeping. Terrified for their lives as they face potential death in the depths of the water, they cry out to wake up Jesus. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Or maybe as the psalmist would say, out of the depths, Lord, I cry to you. What does Jesus do? Does he tell them how to believe in themselves so they can fight back the storms on their own? Tell them how good they are or how strong they are on their own to swim out of the current? No. Well, first he rebukes the disciples for having little faith in him, but then, importantly for this passage, he rebukes the storm itself and calms the entire sea with just the sound of his voice. Friends, this Jesus who calmed the sea and rescued the disciples is the same Jesus who you need to calm the sea and rescue you. Now we've spent the past few minutes showing how sinful and unfit we are to be in the presence of God, that we've 
put ourselves in these depths? What if we're so sinful and God is the one who must save us? Then how does he do it? How does he remove this gulf that we feel sitting between us and him? And this leads us to our next section where we'll spend the majority of our time, the nature of our hope. Look at verse 4 again. What does it say? But with you there is forgiveness. The root of his problem that he's found himself in is that he knows he's sinful, that he's guilty, and that he rightly deserves the judgment of God. But even as he's faced with the reality, here we see that the psalmist has hope. Because as he says, with God is forgiveness. It is part of who he is. He is forgiveness. This is in contrast with the psalmist's sin and what he might expect to receive as just punishment. Remember, he calls out, if you mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He recognizes that he deserves punishment and judgment. But here we see a shining reminder that the Lord doesn't act the way that we think he would as a human. It goes against every fiber of our being. Really, the only time we give forgiveness to someone we don't think deserves it is to make ourselves feel better. I've done my part. I've forgiven them and now I can move on. And that's all fine and good for human relationships and sometimes that's necessary, but that's not going to cut it for our problem of sin. Just forgiveness without a change in the relationship will not heal the problem of sin. What's going on here is the Lord is granting forgiveness to the psalmist who doesn't deserve it. Not that he may become better or move on from the hurt that's been caused, but so that the psalmist may be restored in relationship with him. And we see that's really the goal of the forgiveness that God gives here in verse 4. It says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God doesn't grant forgiveness just so we can return to the depths and wallow in our sinful state again. No, when he pulls us out of the depths, he also works in our hearts to cause us to fear him and walk in his ways. There is a change when he forgives. And this is how Psalm 128 verse 1 talks about fearing the Lord. It's walking in his ways. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. So God's forgiveness has, as one of its goals, the restoration of our relationship with him, that we may begin to understand what it looks like to walk in his ways and enjoy fellowship with him, even in the depths. But you may be asking yourself, okay, well, I've been forgiven. I know that. But why do I still feel like I do? Why do I feel as though I'm still in the depths if I've really been pulled out of the water, like you said? Well, because while deliverance from sin's guilt comes immediately, deliverance from the consequences of sin takes much longer. We still wrestle with our sin. We still encounter suffering of our own doing, but also suffering of things that are out of our control. Very quickly, it, begin, it can begin to feel as though we've been left again to play and drown in the depths while God is out doing something else, like he has abandoned us. But how would the psalmist respond to this sort of thinking? How does he respond while he's in the depths? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. To wait is to have hope. And to have hope means that though we can't see her right now, the Lord is working to bring us forever out of the depths. I mean, that's not something so 
easily done today in our fast-paced world. Waiting requires slowing down, trusting in the plan, ignoring our instincts to bail when things get hard. But that's what the psalmist calls for, right? In fact, he repeats it for emphasis that he's waiting for the Lord. Waiting implies a sort of confidence or assurance that whatever is going to happen will happen. And in this case, the psalmist, the one who wrote this psalm, waits because he knows the Lord will fulfill his promises. He knows that the Lord will make good on what he said in his word. And that's where he gets his confidence from. That's how he knows that the Lord will fulfill his promises. The the psalmist knows the Lord's words and understands that to find assurance of what's going on, to find assurance on how to wait and hope in the depths is to read his word, to know his word, and to believe his word. You know, I'm reminded of that verse in Amazing Grace, the, the hymn that goes, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. How do you know who you are? How do you handle your relationships breaking up all around you? What are you going to do when you retire? How can you trust the Lord when you can barely make ends meet? The world can't give us answers to those questions. There's no number of self-help books on Amazon that will ever come close to satisfying the hunger we have for those questions. The only place you can turn to that will give you the answers that you need is the Word of God. You know, it's pretty hard to trust someone when you don't know what they think or what they've ever said. I'm about to bungee jump. I'm going to want to be assured by the people working there that they not only know what they're talking about, but that they've done the work to assure that this thing won't snap at the bottom of the plunge, that I will return back to the top and be freed from this rope. Friends, when you're in the depths and are looking for a way out, there is no greater assurance that God is working in your lives than his word. It's not going to give you exact answers to your next math test or who to hire or what car to buy. Sure, it gives you wisdom on how to make those choices, and you should always look to his word for guidance. But ultimately, the questions that you're seeking to have answered, the ones that your soul longs for, find their answer in Scripture, in his word, in his promises. Why? Because all of the Lord's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, who is the word. Read it. Know it. Pray it. Learn the voice of the Lord who has made you and called you and the voice of the one who can pull you out of the depths. We see the psalmist does. That's why he, in verse 6, emphasizes his waiting even more as he describes himself as a watchman in the night. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't know that many watchmen today, or actually I don't think I know a single watchman, nor did I really know what a watchman was before I did my study on this passage. The closest I've come to knowing what a watchman is is when I worked at Target and had to work overnight shifts stocking the floor and loading trucks, and my shift manager watched over my night shift. So that's about as close as I can get to watchmen. Um, But some of you probably know better than me what it's like to constantly work at night. With each passing hour, you look out the window and try to see if the sun is starting to peak 
through the trees. You're longing for the morning because you know that's the time when you're done with your shift. You wait expectantly and hopefully until that moment comes. Well, so to hear the watchmen were those who literally watched over the night in shifts in order to watch for intruders to protect their people, their flocks, their belongings. They longed for the morning because not only did they get to finish their late night shift, but also they knew when the morning came, they were safe, that they could see. I mean, imagine having to stay up at night to watch for intruders. You know, your, your, your senses are heightened at night. You're a little more on edge. Every little movement of the trees you check out, you're a little uneasy. Every crack and creak of branches behind you, you feel like there's a bear walking behind you even though you're in the middle of Pennsylvania. Or maybe for you, it's more like spending countless nights tossing and turning in your beds as you run over all the possible things you did wrong that day. All the ways in which you failed to be perfect. Maybe I shouldn't have said that in the meeting today. Maybe I'm not good enough. I didn't do well on that assignment. Maybe I'm not a good student. My kids are so misbehaved. Maybe I'm not a good parent. I've wasted so much of my day. I'm such a lazy person. I've sinned too much and I can't bear to face anyone anymore. And before you know it, the sun starts to rise and hits you in the face and you have to face another day. This is the sort of thing the psalmist is conveying. And yet, even as he tosses and turns in the night, he is reminded by the Lord's word of promise that in the morning he will be forgiven. That the relief he so longed for in the night will be given to him when the morning finally comes, just as God always planned to do. So we see that the believer, the one who wrote this psalm, us, we are to hopefully wait in the Lord to fulfill the promises of his word. And what happens when we wait and the morning finally comes? Look at what happens in verses 7 to 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He has experienced God's forgiveness and mercy. And now he turns to the people nearby and calls to them to hope in the Lord. Why? Well, having been through the night and having now experienced the morning, the psalmist is able to stand firmly in knowing that God's covenantal love and faithfulness is not just a nice thought, but sure promises. Despite his sinfulness and his unfaithful life to God, he has been shown mercy, which brought him from the deepest depths and now has raised him from the highest of highs. I mean, isn't that amazing? The psalm itself starts in the depths, but ends here only a few verses later with him proclaiming the assurance of hoping in God to all those around him. At first, he was crying out to God for mercy that he had yet to behold in verse 1. But now in verses 7 to 8, he cries out to the people about his mercy, which he has lavishly experienced. This is why the psalm is called a song of ascents. It's not just explaining a thought experiment, but it's a lived reality. In verse 1, we're in the pit of despair with the psalmist. We're in the foxhole with him. We feel his sinfulness. We feel it too. 
we feel the despair as he cries out. As he grapples with his sinfulness in the light of God's forgiveness, we can feel the weights of the depth slowly but surely being taken off his shoulders. You probably felt it too. I mean, if you've ever been in these sorts of depths before, you know the relief, the weight that comes off your shoulders from the Lord's sure promise of forgiveness that he fulfills. And then in verses 7 to 8, the sun rises after a long wait in the night and the psalmist bursts into celebration as the Lord fulfills his promises to forgive and make new. And even all of this that he's experienced, the psalmist, the one who wrote the psalm, only gets a taste of the Lord's mercy and forgiveness. For while he truly is forgiven, he had yet to see the fullness and finality of forgiveness in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who fulfills and makes perfect every promise of the Psalms. Why? Because he, Jesus, has experienced the very things the psalmist describes here. Jesus himself experienced what it's like to cry out to God from the depths as he was being crucified on the cross. He felt the weight of sin and guilt as he took that from us and bore it on himself. He's been through the long wait of the night as he looked forward to and prepared to be beaten, ridiculed, abused, and hung on the cross. Jesus himself was in the depths, but it wasn't for long. Just as the psalmist was raised from the depths to the top of the mountain, as we see in the flow of this psalm, Jesus was raised from death, the lowest of the depths, to life, the highest peak of the mountains. Jesus himself is our hope in life and death as we wait for his return because Jesus himself went through the darkest depths on our behalf that we may never be left there again. Jesus is the basis of our hope because it is by Jesus' blood that we may be forgiven. The forgiveness shown here in verse four in the psalm was actually given to the psalmist, not because he was repentant enough or because he had shown enough faith or because he was good enough or was promising enough, but because it pointed forward to the day when Jesus would fulfill the requirements on his behalf to stand in the presence of the Holy God. You see, the only reason you and I can read the psalm and apply it to ourselves is because Jesus first lived it. We may be asking, well, if Jesus first lived it and we've experienced this forgiveness, what if I sin? What if I find myself back in the depths? You know, life happens, whether it's the anxiety caused by raising a newborn or feeling like you can't make ends meet or feeling totally isolated because you're the only one who is not married or doesn't have a family and, and you're alone. It's very easy to wind up right back where the psalm started. You start to feel insecure in your faith or like God has abandoned you or that you have done something wrong to put you back there. But friends, when Christ was sacrificed for your sins, it wasn't so he would have to do it all over again. No, Jesus's death and resurrection, his experience in the depths being raised to the heights was full and final once and for all. There's no sin he can't overcome. There's no depth where he can't see you, where he can't hear you, where he can't reach you. And in this forgiveness you receive, you are actually given the tools to remain hopeful through the night. Even as we wait for the Lord, you have his word at your fingertips. 
You can read it on your phones. You can turn to it in the middle of the night. But not only that, just as the psalmist turned to the people nearby to hope in the Lord, just as he did, as he hoped in the Lord, you too have a body full of believers who have gone through the depths. None of you have never experienced in some way the power of God's forgiveness to rescue you from the pit. And now he's called you to be part of the family, a family who all waits together in hope for the Lord's return. While once you felt like no one could hear you, now you are surrounded with a chorus singing, hope in the Lord, his promises are sure. If you can't say this of yourself, that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and are a part of this chorus of hopeful waiters, but feel the weight of your depths ringing in your ears. Know that without Christ, you will not be able to rescue yourself. Though there is hope in his word for those who trust in Christ, his promise to judge those who do not believe in Christ are just as sure. Do you know that everyone will be responsible to the Lord, not just Christians? Well, this is you, and you felt the strain of the depths beginning to destroy you, and you're crying out, and you feel like no one can hear you. Cry out to the one who can lift you. Come speak to one of our elders. Come speak to a trusted friend who's a believer. Talk to them. Read his word. Cry out to the one who can save you. For all those of you who trust in Christ, but still feel as if the depths are present reality. The night is long, but the morning will come. Read his word and you will see the sure promises laid out for you, not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus Christ. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word of promise, that even as we feel the weight of our sin, even as we feel like we are up to our necks in the water, in the depths, that because of your son, your holy and righteous son, who went through the deepest of depths on our behalf, we can cry out to you. We can hope in you. We can wait in you and know that when you return, when the morning comes, you will restore us. We will be with you. So Father, I pray that this word would sit richly in our hearts as we dwell on what that means for us. We thank you so much for your son who shed blood, who was beaten, who was ridiculed, who died on the cross for our sins, but was raised to life. And we look forward to that day when we will be raised too. I pray all of this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.